Section 4 of Essays on Political Economy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays on Political Economy by Frederic Bastiat. Section 4 That which is seen, and that which is not seen. In the Department of Economy, an act, a habit, an institution, a law, gives birth not only to an effect, but to a series of effects. Of these effects, the first only is immediate. It manifests itself simultaneously with its cause. It is seen. The others unfold in succession. They are not seen. It is well for us if they are foreseen. Between a good and a bad economist, this constitutes the whole difference. The one takes account of the visible effect. The other takes account both of the effects, which are seen, and also of those which it is necessary to foresee. Now this difference is enormous, for it almost always happens that when the immediate consequence is favorable, the ultimate consequences are fatal, and the converse. Hence it follows that the bad economist pursues a present good, which will be followed by a great evil to come, while the true economist pursues a great good to come, at the risk of a small present evil. In fact, it is the same in the science of health, arts, and in that of morals. It often happens that the sweeter the first fruit of a habit is, the more bitter are the consequences. Take, for example, debauchery, idleness, prodigality. When, therefore, a man absorbed in the effect which is seen, has not yet learned to discern those which are not seen, he gives way to fatal habits, not only by inclination, but by calculation. This explains the fatally grievous condition of mankind. Ignorance surrounds its cradle. Then its actions are determined by the first consequences, the only ones which, in its first stage, it can see. It is only in the long run that it learns to take account of the others. It has to learn this lesson from two very different masters, experience and foresight. Experience teaches effectually, but brutally. It makes us acquainted with all the effects of an action, by causing us to feel them, and we cannot fail to finish by knowing that fire burns, if we have burned ourselves. For this rough teacher, I should like, if possible, to substitute a more gentle one. I mean foresight. For this purpose I shall examine the consequences of certain economical phenomena, by placing in opposition to each other those which are seen, and those which are not seen. 1. THE BROKEN WINDOW Have you ever witnessed the anger of a good shopkeeper, James B., when his careless son happened to break a pane of glass? If you have been present at such a scene, you will most assuredly bear witness to the fact that every one of the spectators, were there even thirty of them, by common consent apparently, offered the unfortunate owner this invariable consolation. It is an ill wind that blows nobody good. Everybody must live, and what would become of the glaziers if 
panes of glass were never broken. Now, this form of condolence contains an entire theory, which it will be well to show up in this simple case, seeing that it is precisely the same as that which, unhappily, regulates the greater part of our economical institutions. Suppose it costs six francs to repair the damage, and you say that the accident brings six francs to the glazier's trade, that it encourages that trade to the amount of six francs, I grant it. I have not a word to say against it. You reason justly. The glazier comes, performs his task, receives his six francs, rubs his hand, and, in his heart, blesses the careless child. All this is that which is seen. But if, on the other hand, you come to the conclusion, as is too often the case, that it is a good thing to break windows, that it causes money to circulate, and that the encouragement of industry in general will be the result of it, you will oblige me to call out, Stop there! Your theory is confined to that which is seen. It takes no account of that which is not seen. It is not seen that, as our shopkeeper has spent six francs upon one thing, he cannot spend them upon another. It is not seen that if he had not had a window to replace, he would, perhaps, have replaced his old shoes, or added another book to his library. In short, he would have employed his six francs in some way this accident has prevented. Let us take a view of industry in general, as affected by this circumstance. The window being broken, the glazier's trade is encouraged to the amount of six francs. This is that which is seen. If the window had not been broken, the shoemaker's trade, or some other, would have been encouraged to the amount of six francs. This is that which is not seen. And if that which is not seen is taken into consideration because it is a negative fact, as well as that which is seen because it is a positive fact, it will be understood that neither industry in general, nor the sum total of national labor, is affected whether windows are broken or not. Now let us consider James B. himself. In the former supposition, that of the window being broken, he spends six francs, and has neither more nor less than he had before, the enjoyment of a window. In the second, where we suppose the window not to have been broken, he would have spent six francs in shoes, and would have had, at the same time, the enjoyment of a pair of shoes and of a window. Now, as James B. forms a part of society, we must come to the conclusion that, taking it all together, and making an estimate of its enjoyments and its labors, it has lost the value of a broken window. Whence we arrive at this unexpected conclusion. Society loses the value of things which are uselessly destroyed, and we must assent to a maxim which will make the hair of protectionists stand on end. To break, to spoil, to waste, is not to encourage national labor, or, more briefly, destruction is not profit. What will you say, monetaire industrial? What will you say, disciples of good M. F. Chamins, 
who has calculated with so much precision how much trade would gain by the burning of Paris, from the number of houses it would be necessary to rebuild. I am sorry to disturb these ingenious calculations, as far as their spirit has been introduced into our legislation. But I beg him to begin them again, by taking into account that which is not seen, and placing it alongside of that which is seen. The reader must take care to remember that there are not two persons only, but three concerned in the little scene which I have submitted to his attention. One of them, James B., represents the consumer, reduced, by an act of destruction, to one enjoyment instead of two. Another, under the title of the glazier, shows us the producer, whose trade is encouraged by the accident. The third is the shoemaker, or some other tradesman, whose labor suffers proportionably by the same cause. It is this third person who is always kept in the shade, and who, personating that which is not seen, is a necessary element of the problem. It is he who shows us how absurd it is to think we see a profit in an act of destruction. It is he who will soon teach us that it is not less absurd to see a profit in a restriction, which is, after all, nothing else than a partial destruction. Therefore, if you will only go to the root of all the arguments which are adduced in its favor, all you will find will be the paraphrase of this vulgar saying, What would become of the glaziers, if nobody ever broke windows? 2. THE DISBANDING OF TROOPS It is the same with a people as it is with a man. If it wishes to give itself some gratification, it naturally considers whether it is worth what it costs. To a nation security is the greatest of advantages. If in order to obtain it, it is necessary to have an army of a hundred thousand men, I have nothing to say against it. It is an enjoyment bought by a sacrifice. Let me not be misunderstood upon the extent of my position. A member of the assembly proposes to disband a hundred thousand men, for the sake of relieving the taxpayers of a hundred millions. If we confine ourselves to this answer, the hundred millions of men and these hundred millions of money are indispensable to the national security. It is a sacrifice. But without this sacrifice, France would be torn by factions or invaded by some foreign power. I have nothing to object to this argument, which may be true or false, in fact, but which, theoretically, contains nothing which militates against economy. The error begins when the sacrifice itself is said to be an advantage because it profits somebody. Now, I am very much mistaken if, the moment the author of the proposal has taken his seat, some orator will not rise and say, Disband a hundred thousand men! Do you know what you are saying? What will become of them? Where will they get a living? Don't you know that work is scarce everywhere, that every field is overstocked? Would you turn them out of doors to increase competition and to weigh upon the rate of wages? Just now, when it is a hard matter to live at all, it would be a pretty thing if the state must find bread for a hundred thousand individuals. Consider, 
besides, that the army consumes wine, arms, clothing, that it promotes the activity of manufacturers and garrison towns, that it is, in short, the godsend of innumerable purveyors. Why any one must tremble at the bare idea of doing away with this immense industrial movement? This discourse, it is evident, concludes by voting the maintenance of a hundred thousand soldiers, for reasons drawn from the necessity of the service, and from economical considerations. It is these considerations only that I have to refute. A hundred thousand men, costing the taxpayers a hundred millions of money, live and bring to the purveyors as much as a hundred millions can supply. This is that which is seen. But a hundred million taken from the pockets of the taxpayers cease to maintain these taxpayers and the purveyors as far as a hundred millions reach. This is that which is not seen. Now make your calculations. Cast up, and tell me what profit there is for the masses. I will tell you where the loss lies, and to simplify it, instead of speaking of a hundred thousand men and a million of money, it shall be of one man and a thousand francs. We will suppose that we are in the village of A. The recruiting sergeants go their round, and take off a man. The tax-gatherers go their round, and take off a thousand francs. The man and the sum of money are taken to Metz, and the latter is destined to support the former for a year without doing anything. If you consider Metz only, you are quite right. The measure is a very advantageous one. But, if you look towards the village of A, you will judge very differently, for, unless you are very blind indeed, you will see that that village has lost a worker, and the thousand francs which would remunerate his labor, as well as the activity, which, by the expenditure of those thousand francs, it would spread around it. At first sight, there would seem to be some compensation. What took place at the village now takes place at Metz, that is all. But the loss is to be estimated in this way. At the village, a man dug and worked. He was a worker. At Metz, he turns to the right about and to the left about. He is a soldier. The money and the circulation are the same in both cases. But in the one, there were three hundred days of productive labor. In the other, there are three hundred days of unproductive labor. Supposing, of course, that a part of the army is not indispensable to the public safety. Now suppose the disbanding to take place. You tell me there will be a surplus of a hundred thousand workers, that competition will be stimulated, and it will reduce the rate of wages. This is what you see. But what you do not see is this. You do not see that to dismiss a hundred thousand soldiers is not to do away with a million of money, but to return it to the taxpayers. You do not see that to throw a hundred thousand workers on the market is to throw into it, at the same moment, the hundred millions of money needed to pay for their labor, that, consequently, the same act which increases the supply of hands increases also the demand, from which it follows that your fear of a reduction of wages is unfounded. 
you do not see that, before the disbanding, as well as after it, there are in the country a hundred millions of money, corresponding with the hundred thousand men. That the whole difference consists in this. Before the disbanding, the country gave the hundred millions to the hundred thousand men for doing nothing, and that after it, it pays them the same sum for working. You do not see, in short, that when a taxpayer gives his money, either to a soldier, in exchange for nothing, or to a worker, in exchange for something, all the ultimate consequences of the circulation of this money are the same in these two cases. Only, in the second case, the taxpayer receives something, in the former he receives nothing. The result is a dead loss to the nation. The sophism which I am here combating will not stand the test of progression, which is the touchstone of principles. If, when every compensation is made, and all interests satisfied, there is a national profit in increasing the army, why not enroll under its banners the entire male population of the country? 3. Taxes Have you never chanced to hear it said, There is no better investment than taxes. Only see what a number of families it maintains, and consider how it reacts upon industry. It is an inexhaustible stream. It is life itself. In order to combat this doctrine, I must refer to my preceding refutation. Political economy knew well enough that its arguments were not so amusing that it could be said of them, Repetitions, please. It has, therefore, turned the proverb to its own use, well convinced that, in its mouth, repetitions teach. The advantages which officials advocate are those which are seen. The benefit which accrues to the providers is still that which is seen. This blinds all eyes. But the disadvantages which the taxpayers have to get rid of are those which are not seen, and the injury which results from it to the providers is still that which is not seen, although this ought to be self-evident. When an official spends for his own profit an extra hundred sous, it implies that a taxpayer spends for his profit a hundred sous less. But the expense of the official is seen, because the act is performed, while that of the taxpayer is not seen, because, alas, he is prevented from performing it. You compare the nation, perhaps, to a parched tract of land, and the tax to a fertilizing rain. Be it so. But you ought also to ask yourself, where are the sources of this rain, and whether it is not the tax itself, which draws away the moisture from the ground and dries it up. Again, you ought to ask yourself whether it is possible that the soil can receive as much of this precious water by rain as it loses by evaporation. There is one thing very certain, that when James B. counts out a hundred sous for the tax-gatherer, he receives nothing in return. Afterwards, when an official spends these hundred sous and returns them to James B., it is for an equal value in corn or labor. The final result is a loss to James B. of five francs.
It is very true that often, perhaps very often, the official performs for James B. an equivalent service. In this case there is no loss on either side. There is merely an exchange. Therefore my arguments do not at all apply to useful functionaries. All I say is, if you wish to create an office, prove its utility. Show that its value to James B., by the service which it performs for him, is equal to what it costs him. But, apart from this intrinsic utility, do not bring forward as an argument the benefit which it confers upon the official, his family, and his providers. Do not assert that it encourages labor. When James B. gives a hundred sous to a government officer for a really useful service, it is exactly the same as when he gives a hundred sous to a shoemaker for a pair of shoes. But when James B. gives a hundred sous to a government officer, and receives nothing for them unless it be annoyances, he might as well give them to a thief. It is nonsense to say that the government officer will spend these hundred sous to the great profit of national labor. The thief would do the same, and so would James B. if he had not been stopped on the road by the extra-legal parasite, nor by the lawful sponger. Let us accustom ourselves, then, to avoid judging of things by what is seen only, but to judge of them by that which is not seen. Last year I was on the Committee of Finance, for under the constituency the members of the opposition were not systematically excluded from all the commissions. In that the constituency acted wisely. We have heard M. Thiers say, I have passed my life in opposing the legitimist party and the priest party, since the common danger has brought us together, now that I associate with them and know them, and now that we speak face to face, I have found out that they are not the monsters I used to imagine them. Yes, distrust is exaggerated. Hatred is fostered among parties who never mix, and if the majority would allow the minority to be present at the commissions, it would perhaps be discovered that the ideas of the different sides are not so far removed from each other, and, above all, that their intentions are not so perverse as is supposed. However, last year I was on the Committee of Finance. Every time that one of our colleagues spoke of fixing at a moderate figure the maintenance of the President of the Republic, that of the Ministers, and of the Ambassadors, it was answered— for the good of the service, it is necessary to surround certain officers with splendor and dignity, as a means of attracting men of merit to them. A vast number of unfortunate persons apply to the President of the Republic, and it would be placing him in a very painful position to oblige him to be constantly refusing them. A certain style in the ministerial saloons is a part of the machinery of constitutional governments. Although such arguments may be controverted, they certainly deserve a serious examination. They are based upon the public interest, whether rightly estimated or not, and as far as I am concerned, I have much more respect for them than many of our Catos have, who are actuated by a narrow spirit of parsimony or of jealousy. But what revolts the economical part of my conscience 
and makes me blush for the intellectual resources of my country, is when this absurd relic of feudalism is brought forward, which it constantly is, and it is favorably received, too. Besides, the luxury of great government officers encourages the arts, industry, and labor. The heads of the state and his ministers cannot give banquets and soirees without causing life to circulate through all the veins of the social body. To reduce their means would starve Parisian industry, and consequently that of the whole nation. I must beg you, gentlemen, to pay some little regard to arithmetic, at least, and not to say before the National Assembly in France, lest to its shame it should agree with you, that in addition gives a different sum, according to whether it is added from the bottom to the top, or from the top to the bottom of the column. For instance, I want to agree with a drainer to make a trench in my field for a hundred sous. Just as we have concluded our arrangement, the tax-gatherer comes, takes my hundred sous, and sends them to the minister of the interior. My bargain is at end, but the minister will have another dish added to his table. Upon what ground will you dare to affirm that this official expense helps the national industry. Do you not see that in this there is only a reversing of satisfaction and labor? A minister has his table better covered, it is true, but it is just as true that an agriculturalist has his field worse drained. A Parisian tavern-keeper has gained a hundred sous, I grant you, but then you must grant me that a drainer has been prevented from gaining five francs. It all comes to this that the official and the tavern-keeper, being satisfied, is that which is seen. The field undrained, and the drainer deprived of his job, is that which is not seen. Dear me, how much trouble there is in proving that two and two make four, and if you succeed in proving it, it is said, the thing is so plain it is quite tiresome, and they vote as if you had proved nothing at all. End of section four. Recording by Katie Riley. February two thousand ten.